If we understand Christmas as beginning in apocalypse with hope against hope, as having its end or goal as armistice, as peace, and as being driven and drawn all the way along by joy, by anticipatory joy, then we're ready. We're ready to approach the familiar stories of Christmas, the sometimes all too familiar stories of Joseph and Mary and Jesus and the manger and the shepherds and the angels and we three kings and all the rest, and to understand them in fresh new ways, to discover or rediscover the meaning of Christmas, the birth of this child. About 1,800 years ago, more or less, an early Christian bishop named Irenaeus came up with a fascinating metaphor for how certain biblical arguments can go astray. He said that though some writers may quote scripture right and left, it's as though they're taking the jeweled tiles of a beautiful mosaic and rearranging them entirely, turning a portrait of a king into a clumsy outline of a rabid beast. The tiles are the same, they're still quoting scripture, but the overall effect is completely mixed up and misleading. Quoting scripture is the easy part, even the devil can do that. As he does in Matthew's famous story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, the devil quotes scripture quite well in fact, and Jesus quotes scripture right back at him. The quoting is the easy part, the hard part is the artistry, the making of the jeweled mosaic of the king. And so when it comes to the familiar stories of Christmas, there are all sorts of artists making all sorts of mosaics, from Hallmark to Walmart to chestnuts roasting on an open fire. But the Bible's Christmas stories turned out to be much more compelling, much more surprising than we've been led to believe. In the end, Christmas is a love story, a thrilling, subversive, epic, multi-generational love story. I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. This is part four of our four-part series on understanding Christmas. And in this episode, we revisit the most familiar Christmas stories, from Mary's Let It Be to those gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Let's start with Mary. One of the most common storytelling conventions in the Bible is not to tell just one story, but two, side by side and in parallel, sort of like a diptych of two paintings meant to be seen together. The juxtaposition of the two parallel stories is one way they generate meaning through similarity and contrast, causing certain details to stand out. The story of the angel Gabriel's visit to Mary is a great example. It's immediately preceded in Luke by another story with the same basic choreography, the angel Gabriel's visit to Zechariah, the priest offering incense in the sanctuary of the Lord. In both stories, Gabriel announces a miraculous birth to Mary, the birth of Jesus, and to Zechariah, the birth of John the baptizer. Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, are getting on in years, as Luke puts it, and so Elizabeth's pregnancy would remind anyone who knows Israel's scriptural library of the story of Abraham and Sarah, who becomes pregnant late in life, and also, and this is crucial, of the story of Hannah. Miraculous pregnancy is one of God's signature moves. 
So now let's look at the two stories side by side. First, Zechariah's initial reaction to seeing Gabriel in the sanctuary is to be utterly terrified. Mary's reaction, Luke says, is to be perplexed and to ponder Gabriel's greeting. This teenager, it appears, is more prepared, more poised to meet the angel than the official priest doing the priestly work in the sanctuary. And not only that, Zechariah is skeptical. He says to Gabriel, How will I know that this is so? He doesn't buy it, in other words. He doesn't believe that it's so. He wants evidence. Mary, on the other hand, says, How can this be? Like Zechariah, she's taken aback. But unlike Zechariah, she presumes the news is true, and she marvels at it. She wonders at it. How can this be? As we saw in the last episode, Mary thinks through Scripture. She remembers the story of Hannah, and through that lens, understands her own situation and makes her own decisions. Zechariah, despite his training and his ancestral pedigree, doesn't. And so Gabriel strikes him temporarily unable to speak, all the way through the pregnancy, all the way until John is born. And Mary, on the other hand, is eloquent. She ponders what the angel says, that she, with no royal ancestry to speak of, will be the mother of a king. And with poise and grace, she says, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Her poise and grace are all the more vividly clear in contrast with Zechariah's, How will I know that this is so? The ordinary teenager, the supposedly lowly Mary, upstages the prestigious priest. She sees and thinks and acts through Scripture. She remembers Hannah and Sarah, and her trust is serene and regal. Gabriel says, For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary says, Let it be. Let the impossible be. What Luke is saying, in effect, is that God is coming into creation in a hidden, unexpected, subversive way. In a world dominated by the authority of older men, a world not unlike our own, Jesus will come through the faith and strength and body of a young woman. In a world dominated by Rome and Jerusalem, Jesus will come through a family from Nazareth, a nowhere town, unmentioned, by the way, in all of Hebrew Scripture. And in a world dominated by imperial power and violent strength, Jesus will come as an utterly vulnerable infant, a soft spot on his head and Mary's milk on his breath. These themes run through Luke's Christmas story from beginning to end. In the greeting card aisles and the sentimental customs of the season, there can be a gauzy, candlelit coziness, and that's all well and good as far as it goes. Coziness in the midst of December is a fine thing, and no Christmas season would be complete without some warm, wondrous enchantment. 
But at the same time, there's a gritty, down-to-earth political side to the Christmas stories in Scripture. Political not in the partisan sense, God help us, but rather in the deeply human, communal, what-kind-of-world-shall-we-build-together sense. And sometimes the season's coziness can obscure it. As we've seen, Mary's song and Gabriel's visit are cases in point, but so is the story of the manger and the shepherds. Far from a sentimental romantic tale in olden days of yore, the story is actually a tense, high-stakes thriller, and a surprisingly contemporary one at that, in this age we're living through a bitter controversy over immigration and authoritarianism all over the world. Immigration and authoritarianism don't inject politics into Christmas. But that's just it. The truth is, many Christian communities have already injected politics into Christmas, not by reading these issues into it, but by obscuring or ignoring the fact that they're already there, hidden in plain sight. Look how Luke begins the story right out of the gates with a sentence that should take our breath away. In those days, Luke writes, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. All the world? Think of the sheer ambition in that decree, the totalitarian appetite. A single comprehensive grid meant to fall across the whole creation, fixing its coordinates, seizing everything in a single grasp, a single registration system capturing everyone the way a hidden net camouflaged in the leaves suddenly springs up and around its prey. And for what? Luke's early audience would know right away, of course. For tribute to the empire, for extracting value in order to build palaces and armies. In short, for strengthening the imperial grip. And that audience would know, too, the implicit threat of force in such a decree, the unsaid, or else, the chill in the air as the grim news spread far and wide. And so, Luke writes, all went to their towns to be registered, even the sick and the infirm, even a pregnant woman on the verge of giving birth. The image is Orwellian, a glimpse of the forced marches and bureaucratic control in authoritarian regimes to come. The Nazis, for example, with their meticulous registration records, took after Caesar Augustus. And so this striking beginning of the story, so far from a romantic portrait, sounds a clear note of imperial dominion and icy menace. Luke's Christmas story opens not only with Gabriel's announcement to Mary, but also with the emperor's announcement, his audacious intimidating attempt at universal control. And God will be born in the wake of this brazen decree. But God will slip through the net and even use it for divine purposes. Like a masterful, mischievous trickster, God enlists the emperor's attempt to capture the world, transforming it into part of the divine plan to save the world since it is the decree, after all, that brings the family from Nazareth to Bethlehem, the house and family of David. David, that other child trickster who foiled Goliath. 
But even in Bethlehem, God will be born beyond the coordinates of imperial surveillance. No address, no trackable trail. This is the deep meaning of no room in the inn. God arrives, but beyond the reach of the emperor's grasp. God is off the grid, hidden with the animals, as yet unnamed. The child isn't named until later on the eighth day. In other words, God is homeless, anonymous, incognito. God is unregistered, undocumented. As Luke tells it, this is the story's most conspicuous dramatic tension. On one side, the emperor's attempt to control the world through registration— and on the other, God's unregistered arrival. And then, just in case we missed it, the story of the shepherds drives the point home. The shepherds don't live in the towns, but rather up in the surrounding hills. They, too, have no addresses, and in the story, no names. They, too, are living with the animals, flouting the emperor's decree. They are the unrecorded, the undocumented. They live in imperial territory, but beyond the empire's control. And sure enough, of all the people in all the world, they are the ones singled out to receive the world-changing good news. They are the ones to whom the angels sing, lifting up the lowly indeed. They are the ones who receive the strange, tantalizing directions for finding the unfindable child. The unregistered shepherds told of the unregistered Savior in the city of David. David, that shepherd. And so they go to him to find him and admire him and pay him their respects. He's one of us, they say to each other. He lives beyond the empire's dominion. He sleeps with the creatures. He lies in a manger. And then the coup de grace. The nameless shepherds issue their own public pronouncement, their counter-decree, passing on to all what the angels proclaimed to them. Good news of great joy for all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. The emperor says, all the world shall be registered. The shepherds say, great joy for all people. Two decrees together establishing what for Luke is the central dramatic tension of Christmas. And Mary, the author of the Magnificat, that song of overturning tyrants, keeps her own counsel, Luke says, pondering all of this in her heart. So by all means, let's light candles and sing carols and feast and be merry. But at the same time, let's recall the world-turning subversive promises of Christmas. The radiant good news that God comes to lift up the lowly, to honor the unregistered, to privilege the underprivileged, and to oppose every imperial attempt, yesterday and today, to control, extract, and hoard the blessings of creation.
Matthew's Christmas story explores similar territory, though from a very different angle. In Matthew, an angel appears to Joseph, not Mary. Matthew presents Joseph as a righteous man, someone who was likely well aware of Jewish laws regarding engagement and marriage. And so he probably knew Deuteronomy 22, where it says that if a man discovers that a woman he has just engaged is not a virgin, quote, the men of her town shall stone her to death, unquote. Joseph, however, compassionately plans to divorce Mary quietly so as to help her avoid public disgrace. The distinguished preacher and scholar Fred Craddock called Joseph the first great interpreter of Scripture in the New Testament. In effect, Joseph uses Scripture against Scripture, subordinating texts like Deuteronomy 22 in favor of texts like Micah 6.8, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. Joseph discerns and acts upon a justice deeper than mere legal justice, a theme his son Jesus would learn well and later expound in his preaching and teaching. Against the shadows of hateful violence dressed up as law, Joseph acts with merciful love, and Matthew's Christmas story begins. Despite the well-known We Three Kings carol, in Matthew's story there are only two kings, King Herod and Jesus, the rumored King of the Jews. The visitors to the Holy Family, who Matthew says actually live in Bethlehem, are not kings, but rather wise ones, magi, scholars who study the stars for signs and omens. So they aren't kings, and they aren't necessarily three either. The story mentions three gifts, or at least three types of gifts, but doesn't specify the number of people who carry them. Those gifts themselves, though, are telling. Gold, for a great monarch, frankincense for a great priest, and myrrh for one who will suffer and die. At the end of Mark, for instance, Jesus is given wine mixed with myrrh at the crucifixion. And in John, Nicodemus and Joseph wrap Jesus' dead body in myrrh and aloes. The cross is foreshadowed in this story in at least three ways. In the myrrh, in the fact that not only King Herod, but all Jerusalem are frightened at the Magi's news of the child's birth, and in Herod's murderous plot, masked as adoration. For the story goes that when the Magi arrive in Jerusalem looking for the newborn king whose birth they see written in the stars, King Herod and all Jerusalem with him are threatened and afraid and set about plotting to kill him. And while many Christmas cards feature a bright star hovering over the Holy Family, Matthew's story suggests otherwise. Only the Magi notice the star in the first place, among the thousands of others visible on a clear night. And King Herod's dependence on the Magi to lead him to the child indicates that neither he nor his assassins could follow the star on their own. In fact, Every card in the aisle, every painting with a star blazing over a stable, obscures the drama at the heart of Matthew's story. This is a child at risk of assassination. Herod's henchmen are looking for him, and the only reason they don't find him is that they can't read the night sky like the Magi can. They just see thousands of meaningless points of light. It's the Magi the outsiders, the foreigners from another culture and another religion, who can see, who can make out the twinkling 
mosaic, the beautiful portrait of a king. Matthew's theme here is the hiddenness of Christ, the small and often unnoticed ways God enters into our lives. This hiddenness is itself a kind of divine signature move. Instead of arriving with fanfare and a blinding blaze of light for all to see at the Temple Mount, God slips into the world quietly, out in the hill country, by way of a poor, unremarkable family in a backwater town. And instead of appearing to an elite crowd of supposed insiders, God will be noticed and understood first by strangers, foreigners, religious outsiders, wise ones from the East. God does arrive, but in a hidden way. The Almighty as a defenseless child. The All-Powerful as vulnerable flesh that can be wounded, just like yours can, and mine. The author of the universe, the giver of all good things, as the baby in Mary's arms. The Bible is a sacred library, and the books on its shelves often make reference to each other, arguing or borrowing or developing ideas into something new, sampling and reprising themes and motifs in the larger symphony, and often thinking through Scripture as they tell their story and make their case. All right, but how do we know which themes are most important, or which motifs are most central, or which jeweled mosaic tiles go in which positions? How do we build, tile by tile, the right portrait, the one of the beautiful human being, not the crude, rabid beast? God knows the tiles can be used for good and for ill. God knows the forces of despair, of conflict, of sorrow, of hate, can and do use these tiles for their own destructive purposes, both inside and outside the church, and so can forces of hope and peace and joy and love. But how do we know the difference? How can we be sure that when we quote Scripture against Scripture, we're doing it in the right way, in the right spirit? How can we be sure that we put the jeweled tiles in the right places? The answer or at least a central answer Christians have given to this question over the centuries, is that we need a guide. A teacher, a rabbi, a docent to show us where to place the tiles, which passages to emphasize, or which verses to use as lenses through which we view other verses, or which ideas to use as counterpoints, scripture against scripture. For Christians, our guide, our teacher, is the one whose birthday we celebrate on Christmas Day. In the world of these narratives, we can imagine what his childhood might have been like, Did he grow up hearing stories about how his young mother thought through scripture with more insight and sensitivity than his uncle Zechariah the priest? How she somehow kept her composure in the face of an angel? Did they tell him about how his father read scripture against scripture, choosing gentleness over violence? 
Did he ask about the golden lamp on the mantle, the one next to the little bowl of frankincense? Did they tell him about the wise and generous strangers who understood Christmas better than any of them did? Did they tell him about the shepherds, how somehow they knew before the priests, before the soldiers, how they looked at him like one of their own? And when it came for him to teach and preach, did he remember? When they asked him, what's the greatest commandment of all, the most important idea in the whole sacred library? Did he think of them, Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the magi, when he pointed to one book on one shelf? When he pointed to the book of Deuteronomy and said, here, see, the greatest commandment is love, to love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then he pointed to another book on another shelf, the book of Leviticus. And he said, here, see, the greatest commandment is love, to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two ideas, which are really one, the whole library and the whole world turns. But Jesus' teaching isn't only what he says and does as an adult. His teaching begins with the way he arrives. Love comes to save, to teach, and to show the beloved the way. And so in the end, Christmas is a love story. From Sarah and Hannah and David down to Mary and Joseph and Jesus, love after love after love, standing up to empire, exalting strangers, honoring the unregistered, hoping against hope, laying down arms, leaping up for joy, anticipatory joy, thinking through scripture, citing scripture against scripture, and giving us a guide to help us understand how to use the Bible's treasury of jeweled mosaic tiles. This is a love that meets us where we are, in the shadows, looking for light, a love made flesh who came to live with us, oh, these many years ago, and will again, this year, on Christmas Day. Strange New World is a SALT Project production, written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer Bolton, music by Pablo J. Garman, Jamie Vizard, and Tom C. Sounds, If you like what you hear, spread the word and give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help people find us. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.